Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Good. It's so good to be together. Um, we're continuing our sermon series. Uh, let me get my napkin here because um, I'm a man that sweats. And so um, we're continuing our sermon series. If you're visiting for the first time and perhaps uh, you don't have the context of where we've been, we're in this sermon series that leads up to Good Friday, Easter Sunday, this season of, in the church's calendar where every year we pause and reflect and worship in light of what God has done. But what we're doing in this series is arguing that once a year is not enough. To celebrate the incarnation once a year during Christmas is not enough. To think about the crucifixion of Jesus once a year is not enough. The resurrection. And so we're prayerfully looking to Scripture and see what it would look like to apply the gospel, the good news to our hearts continuously. And today we're going to talk about the cross and the empty tomb. The cross and the empty tomb. Let's go to Scripture, Acts chapter 5, verse 33 and onward. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. And all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail." But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for this sacred moment to be with your people, in your presence, with our hearts attuned to your word. Would you speak to us, meet us, be glorified. May we hear your voice. Holy Spirit, move in our midst. Bring your comfort, your power, your presence, your conviction. Reveal Jesus to each and every one of us, afresh and anew. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you can remember, but in 2010, feels like a lifetime ago, there was uh, what they call the Chilean mining accident. It was horrific. Um, If I could jar your memory, it was 33 men trapped 2,300 feet underground and three miles from the mine's entrance. These men were trapped there for over 60 days. And the world was on pins and needles. Those that were watching the story and keeping up Wondering, are they going to make it? It it, it was a harrowing situation. 
Um, and miraculously, which doesn't always happen in these situations, they all came out alive. They were able to live to see another day. And when they began to emerge out of the mine, there was great cheers and joy and celebration because family and loved ones in the world was on edge, not knowing if they were going to survive because the, the, the cards were stacked against them. If you could just imagine for a moment what it might be like to be underground for over 60 days in a mine, no less, when you and I, if we're stuck in between a tunnel on the R train, we can wig out. And we know we're going to get out. It's not 2,000 feet underneath the ground. It, it, the, the sheer experience is just mind-boggling. But they made it out against all odds. And I think in many ways, if we're sensitive to the history of our faith, if we're attuned to the circumstances that surrounded Christianity coming into this world, forming as a way of life, as a practice, following this Jesus, legitimately we can ask, how did it survive? How did it, it, it's more impossible to imagine that it survived than it is for these men to come out of this, this mine because if we know the circumstances, the context, the history, it's insane that it survived. And one of the things that's touched on in this text in Acts, the religious leaders there were ready to reprimand, severely disciplined, throw in jail, even potentially kill the apostles. At this point, they had been strictly warned, stop preaching in this name. You see, when Christianity first emerged, it was a sect of Judaism. It was not its own separate thing. And so what was happening was there was the Jewish faith and there was this group of folks within Judaism that are saying, hey, everybody, the Messiah, the awaited Savior that we're all waiting for has come and we've seen him and he's risen from the dead and we're following him. Come follow us as we follow him. And this was causing some trouble. They were trying to control it. And so they threatened them, they beat them, they put them in jail. At this point, the things are about to ratchet up, and then there was this wise leader that rose up in this council and said, hey, let me give you some perspective. This is not the first time we've seen people arise and have a following after themselves. And he names a couple of people that up until this point had caused a stir, but the one common thread was in these movements that, they, that he mentioned was once the founder was killed, the movement died. It's like, just wait. Wait it out. We've seen this before. People get stirred up. It's like a firecracker. It's a big bang and then it's gone. Just wait. Calm down. Because they were saying, in their minds, in his mind, he's trying to be persuasive. This Jesus person, they say he died. I mean, they're saying he rose from the dead. That sounds crazy, but we know he's not here physically. This is going to die down. And what these men, what he was trying to persuade these men to understand is actually something that we've seen happen uh, in the business world, for example. Very few companies survive the death of the founder. Uh, very few things last for many generations, for more than 50, 60 years. You remember during the financial collapse of 2008, it was shocking when Bear Stearns, 
a bank that was in existence for over 80 years, poof, gone. It, but it, it was shocking because it had been here so long, people didn't expect for it to just be erased. And there's this moment here in Acts 5 that highlights this understanding. And to further complicate things, and to further ask the question, how did Christianity survive? In the very beginning, the founders of this faith, the ones that are preaching the empty tomb of Jesus, they're being threatened left and right. Many pay with their life for their faith in Jesus. But in the middle of that, there's some further complexity. We read in the Gospels that even the disciples had doubts. After Jesus is crucified, and after he rises from the dead, after thousands of people being powerfully touched and influenced by Jesus, we read that there's only 120 men and women in this place called the Upper Room in Jerusalem that were still holding on and believing that this Jesus rose from the dead and that he had come to fulfill God's promise. But in between that, the disciples doubted. If you actually read uh, Mark chapter 8 to 10, Jesus says repeatedly in those moments, he's going to rise again. And yet when you get to the end of the gospel, Matthew 28, you read that there was doubt, even as Jesus was physically in front of them, after rising from the dead. Very different than what we see happen today. If you've ever noticed, a very popular thing that happens these days on social media is that they'll try to get a celebrity to endorse their product. And that's the hope, peg, that company is pegging their success, their growth on this idea of if this influential person uses this product, then everyone will follow suit. And by and large, there's some credibility to that business model. And so the uh, reason uh, I am constantly um, resisting celebrity endorsements, uh, they're constantly trying to get me to sell their products. So I'm just too busy, guys. Go on and, and so spread love elsewhere. But the, the, the reality is, when you look at our faith, there were no celebrities. The founding of it were a group of misfits, the least likely people to put on their shoulders this idea of spreading this good news to the world. And yet, not only were they misfits, but many of them struggled to actually believe at a certain point that this message that they were called to preach was actually true. Let me add another layer of complexity. You're like, man, it is sounding a bit like sad. But let me, <laughs> we need to understand the impossibility, the mathematical impossibility that our faith survived if we're just crunching the numbers in a purely naturalistic perspective. If there's no supernatural element to our faith, it makes no sense why it survived through the ages. Because another little layer of complexity is that the very first eyewitnesses were not considered credible to the then world. Do you know why? The first eyewitnesses were women. This is why today I laugh 
I know for some of you, this, this is not even in my notes, and this may cause some stuff. Talk to me. I doubt it's going to cause some stuff. You've been in here long enough. But some folks believe that women shouldn't preach. Tell that to the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. They were women. We would have no gospel to believe in unless we actually believed that women were credible. God chose for those women to be at the empty tomb and be the first eyewitnesses to tell the world this Jesus has risen from the dead. And so when I'm asked, do you believe in women preaching? I was like, yes, I do. I believe just like God believes. God believes in them. God put them right there in the tomb. Who am I to say that they can't be behind a pulpit? That's quite silly. But anyway, if you differ in that perspective, I love you nonetheless, and you're welcome here. But, and we will let you enjoy being blessed by women preachers. And so, but that doesn't take away. At that time, this didn't help our cause. Because in that culture, they did not put any credibility to women. So much so that in their legal writings, uh, the testimony of three to five women were necessary to convict one man. And even then, there was some wiggle room. And yet, the faith that we believe, that we're in this room, worshiping, singing, that throughout our week, we're centering ourselves in the life and person and presence of Jesus, it all stems from these eyewitnesses being believed as credible, which at that time they were not. So again, how did this thing survive? How are we here? 2022, New York City, professing faith in Jesus when this is how it starts Here's why. Because what we come to find out from the scriptures that when Jesus died, he was not the only one that died. You say, yeah, I know that, Chris. There were some thieves beside him. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just Jesus that rose from the dead. What are you talking about, Chris? Did you have your coffee this morning? This is a bit disorienting. What do you mean that when Jesus died and when he rose, he was not the only one that died, he was not the only one that rose, and what does that have to do with the faith that we profess surviving through the ages? I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 6 Verse 5 and onward says this. Please hear these words. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, a church in a city very much like ours, says this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. 
The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What an amazing passage. See, for for every skeptic, every person looking on the outside in, the only possible explanation for the survival of the Christian faith is that the cross and the resurrection were not just mere physical acts that happened to Jesus himself, but that through him enduring those experiences, God loaded onto those moments supernatural significance that transcends through history. They were eternal acts done in time. And these eternal acts done in time have impact for every human being because what took place is that God laid upon him on the cross every sin, every, every malfeasance, every single broken thing that has happened up until that point and for the future, once and for all, was all laid on Jesus on that cross. And when he rose, he was not just rising to defy and break death for himself, he was declaring a brand new moment in history where death would be defeated and that would have implications for every single human being. That death no longer has the final word. And because these moments were packed with supernatural, eternal significance, it's the reason why our faith has been able to survive such formidable opponents Civilizations have come and gone, and yet there's still people preaching the good news of Jesus. In today, in parts of the world where you can be arrested or killed because of your faith, there's still men and women in the, in the most severe poverty declaring the gospel of Jesus. It's not comfortable for them. It doesn't allow them to climb the social ladder. They don't get any earthly benefits for doing so. Yet they do so boldly, not because they're naive or simple. It's because they have been touched by the power of the resurrection and the power of the cross. Because those moments were not just historical moments. They were eternally significant. The church has thrived through the ages because at the heart of it, there is redemption. That's what Paul is speaking of, this redemption that's possible because of the cross and the resurrection. Because of what's happened in the cross, Paul says the body of sin has been destroyed. It's been killed. What he means by that, the language is conveying this understanding that you and I, we are no longer slaves to our old nature. If you were looking for a moment to scream amen, you missed it. <laughs> I had some uncles that did some hard time in jail. There was nothing like the day they came home. Because they were free. They were no longer bound. 
But sadly, many of them went back. It's called recidivism. Why? Because even though you're free, you could still think like a bound person. By and large, that's, if we're honest, if you're a follower of Jesus, we probably fit in that category. We've been declared free, and yet we could still act like slaves. But Paul is saying that in the cross of Jesus, there's freedom. The penalty of our sin, our shame, has been carried away. Freedom from what's called the body of sin. So much so that he says, don't count yourselves the way you used to. Don't consider yourself. Consider yourself now in light of what Jesus has done. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then he boldly says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body because of what Jesus has done. The Christian faith is so much more than self-help and behavior modification. It's not, it's not telling you to change your behavior in your own strength. It's telling you change is possible because of what took place on the cross. Transformation is possible because there's an empty tomb that Jesus rose. And when he rose, that had implications for you and I that we could walk in new life. And this is, if, if, you wanna, if you want some renewed passion to share the faith with people that don't follow Jesus and invite them to follow Jesus, let it be this, realizing that their freedom has already been purchased, but they don't walk in it. That new life is possible if they just put faith in Jesus. We were included in both of these tremendous acts of God, in the cross and in the resurrection. And because of that, we're now dead to our old self and have new life. That's possible. What's made the Christian faith survive throughout the ages has been this transformative power at the center of it. That broken people are made whole because of their faith in Jesus. That bound people are set free because of their faith in Jesus. Non-belief in God has never led to the transformation of the soul that belief in God has led. There was a story of this man that he was a pretty well-known atheist. I believe he was in Southern California. And he used to debate Christians all the time. And he went on the radio publicly, um, challenged a well-known pastor and said, I, I want to debate you in public. His goal was to decimate this guy. He wanted to publicly embarrass him, show his arguments were intellectually superior. And the pastor laid the simple thing. He said, I'll be there as long as you bring people with you that have been transformed by your non-faith. I'll bring mine, you bring yours, and then we'll talk. Atheists had nobody to bring with him. This guy brought former drug addicts, prostitutes, people coming out of poverty, uh, brought people that used to have domestic violence in their home and uh, kids that were in the foster care space and 
and, and Jesus used a loving family to redeem these kids, and now they have hope as adults. It was over 500 people showed up, just this one radio call. Anybody who's been transformed by Jesus, come, and let's declare that. Why the faith has survived is because faith in Jesus still transforms people's lives. Anytime I open the Bible, I love to think of this thought, that I'm reading the oldest book whose author is still alive. That every time I open it, the living God, I get to encounter him, meet him, he gets to speak to me, transform me. That simple transformative relationship has been at the core. It's what allowed our faith to survive. While Caesars have come and gone and emperors, our faith has persisted because there's nothing like it to transform broken people. Here's the crazy thing, though. We live in a world that at times feels like it's largely unfazed by this reality. If I told you someone died in your place, and after dying they rose from the dead, and because of that you could live life the way God created you to live with all of his intention, and if you said, meh, what are we doing for brunch? It, like, it, it, if you just kept it moving, there would, there would be a serious like, moment of like, you good? Did you hear what was just said? If you went out these doors today and you were coming and kind of distracted, maybe on your phone or something, and a car was coming and you didn't notice it and somebody pushed you out the way, took the impact, their life is over, you live because of them, and you keep it moving, there's something off. Yet, it's not just unbelievers that are unfazed. Sadly, it's us. Do we wake up every morning when we have difficulties, when we face challenges? Do we see the world through the lens of Jesus hanging on the cross and Jesus rising from the dead? And when he hung on the cross, him bringing us into that, freeing us, we died in him. And then when he rose, we are alive in him. Do we see the world through that lens? What would it look like for you and I to apply this good news, not just once a year, but every day, in every situation, what would it look like to apply the gospel when you're dealing with your child and they're just being difficult? What would it look like when you're applying the gospel and, and maybe you have some elderly parents and it's challenging to navigate that season and, and, and it's stretching you? What would it look like to apply the gospel when you get a bad report from the doctor, when you get news that you were not looking to get and, and it just pulled your heart down? What would it look like to apply the gospel when things are going good, when life seems optimistic and cheery and to remember as good as this is, the apex of goodness was that bloody cross and that empty tomb, 
no increase in salary, no promotion, no comfort in this life. That's all a distant second compared to what Jesus has done. What would it look like for you and I to learn to apply the gospel in every season of life? Practically speaking, what that would do, that would invite us to a continuous examination of this question. What's at the center of your life? Have you asked yourself that question lately? What's at the center of my life? Another way of looking at it is, what are the things that I don't know how to live life without? That if those things were taken from me, things would crumble. Because those things give me security, they give me joy, they give me comfort. I'm not just talking about like temporary. It's good to have joy. It's good to have security and comfort. I'm talking about giving you joy, security, and comfort in a way that it eclipses God. Where your job is now your God. Where your social standing is now your job. Where your accomplishments is now your God. What's at the center of our lives? Is it the bloody cross and the empty tomb, or is it a busy career? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it an addiction? Is it pain? Is it your family, your relationships, good things that we've allowed to become eternal things? You know, family was never intended by God to become the epicenter of our lives. It's an important part. Actually, it's so important that there's a scripture in the New Testament that says that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty sobering. Like, I have faith in Jesus. Get over there, Johnny. Get away from me. I don't want to talk to you, wife, husband. I have faith in Jesus. No, scripture says you have no faith in that situation. Family's important. We're supposed to be present to our family care for them, be responsible, but never at the expense of our relationship with God. It's, it's not built. It doesn't have the capacity to hold the weight of our life. You know how much pressure you would put on a child if they were the source of your happiness? You know how erratic a child is? They're nice to you one moment, then they're not the next. And if they're the source of your peace... Good Lord, I'm talking to you four kids in. Been at war for the last 13 years. They're good. They're not meant to carry the pressure and weight of all of our life. Applying the cross and the resurrection to our daily lives can be as simple as this. Asking yourself the question, am I facing this situation as if Jesus didn't carry me on the cross. This temptation's coming my way. Am I responding to it as if Jesus didn't say that I died to sin and that I'm no longer a slave to it? As if he didn't say I have new life in him? Or am I facing these situations fully believing that he's done it? Are we facing life as if the tomb of Jesus is not empty? 
when you hear an impossible situation, when you're struggling, when you can't see a solution, does your mind go toward, I got to figure this out and I got to kick into high gear? Or does it also go into, I'm going to work hard, but I'm going to trust that God is going to be greater than my hard work. He is going to do what I can't do. That changes everything. When facing our addictions, our fears, our disappointments, do we face them in light of the gospel? Or do we face them in light of our own strength? I'll close with this as the worship team comes forward. In the 1950s, uh, there was a study done in Harvard by Dr. Kurt Richter. It's kind of gross, so just wait with me. Um, we're going somewhere. He placed rats in a pool of water to test how long they could tread water. So you got the visual, right? Kind of a gross visual. He placed rats in a pool of water to test how long they could tread water. On average, they gave up and began to sink after 15 minutes. But right, they, right before they gave up, due to exhaustion, the researchers would pluck them out, dry them off, let them rest for a few minutes, and then put them back in for the next round. In the second try, do you want to guess how long they lasted? Throw some numbers at me. 20 minutes, good guess. 60 minutes, good guess. Sixty hours. Sixty hours. The thought that they would be rescued told them, I'm not going to stop waiting and trying to stay alive because at the end of the day, I'm going to be rescued. It pushed them beyond their limitations. When I think about applying the gospel, how easy it is to quit, to give up, to just accept circumstances as they come and to just let ourselves go versus if we trust, if we believe, if we know ultimately this is true and God rescues and he redeems and the tomb is empty, the capacity to be faithful over difficult seasons somehow shows up. To endure, to push, to wait somehow comes through even though it's not in and of ourselves. Some of us, if we're honest, we stopped swimming in certain situations. We just sank. We gave up. Gave up on our marriage. Gave up on overcoming that addiction. Gave up on that relational situation. Gave up, gave up, gave up. But what if today, as you're reminded to apply and believe the gospel, what if today you realize, I should keep treading. I should keep waiting. I should keep pushing because there's a God who promised to rescue me. And how do I know that? It's not wishful thinking. It's because there's an empty tomb at the heart of my faith in Jesus. 
Could I invite us to stand? As we stand, I want to invite us, if you're comfortable, could we raise our hands in the presence of God? And before we begin to sing, before we begin to pray, in our seats, I want to let you know over these next few moments, the prayer team is in the back, to my left, your right. And you may not know this, but they came here before we all showed up praying for you, for me, praying for everyone that would be in this room, waiting with anticipation how God might use them to pray with you, to stand with you, to minister. And so if there's anything you're carrying, I know in this room there's resilient, tough people, but sometimes the greatest exhibition of toughness is admitting you need support, you need help. They would love to pray and support you and come alongside you and to believe God to do the impossible. If you need prayer, don't leave this place without receiving prayer. With our hands raised, our hearts directed to God, let's sing, let's worship him with all our hearts.